the art doesn't come from the tortured places. The art comes from the spaces between that. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll begin episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilzambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedwell Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and leading manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball Speed Screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or in a classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Brianna Toswell. We talk about the power and importance of comfort and how this is distinct from distraction. Brianna's hand-pulled cart, which she takes to fairs to sell her prints, capital R and lowercase r, romance, and finding hope in a troubled world. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get cozy with Brianna Toswell. Hi, Brianna. How's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for braving technical difficulties and time zones to be with me here today. <laughs> yes. As when I was emailing you yesterday and I was like, we have a meeting tomorrow. And I was like, I don't even want to say tomorrow morning. I know it's my 11 a.m. I have no idea what time it is for you. We have a meeting tomorrow. I'm yeah. sure you have it in your calendar. We're going to have a meeting. It'll be fine. Yeah. It's always a little bit complicated. And this, honestly, this recording session has been just totally crazy for me because I'm doing it on the heels of basically camping for 10 days. And so I got back and I had no, I had no idea what day it was. I was just completely in off grid mode. And so there are many email correspondences with people in this recording session of me being like, tomorrow, not tomorrow. I'm sorry. It's Saturday. It's Saturday. But can we do it at 11? But not 11 your time. 11. My- it's been a little bit of chaos dust already. So <laughs> we're all in good company. Amazing. Yeah. I think that we're all very understanding about each other. So that's good. Yeah. And good place and- to start. And the post-COVID, in-COVID world of Zoom, it's just, yeah, we're all there. We're all there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really happy that you reached out to me and introduced yourself via email because I, I think I'd known you and Penrose Press just in a vague internet sort of way. That's kind of amazing. (laughs) The vague uh, printmaking internet universe where things flow in and out of the boundaries of your consciousness. And so it was really great to get the invitation to look more at your work and speak with you in in person, in real time. And yeah, so before we get into things, would you just introduce yourself and let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Sure thing. 
Hi, I'm Brianna Toswell, and my internet presence is Penrose Press. It's, it's, I guess you would call it my imprint or my business name. So I am both Pe- Brianna Toswell and Penrose Press, and Penrose Press is not anybody else. It's just me. So yep. that can be confusing sometimes. <laughs> and I am based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and I am a linocut artist, bookbinder, letterpress artist, printmaker. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's, you're in a grand tradition of single print people naming themselves a press because it's actually, I think I was talking to maybe one of someone I'm going to be talking to a little later on in the session, Bill Fick. And I think he was talking about the first time he realized that he could just name himself a press (laughs) and then apply for things that are only open to publishers or only open to collaborators Mm -hmm. in some way. And it's a really, it's a kind of printmaking jujitsu, I feel like, to be able to open yourself up to more opportunities and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yes. Well, when I first started using Penrose Press, I literally was making books with a team of people. And then slowly that's dropped off and I'm still Penrose Press. Penrose Press was always me. So I I keep it. Definitely. And so you're in Edmonton now, but where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? I grew up in St. Thomas, Ontario, which is a smallish city, 30,000. And I'm in the category of I was always an artsy type. Mm -hmm. Um, And always I had a very robust sketchbook practice from a very young <laughs> age I would I would draw all of my friends I I was a portrait artist and I would make people sit down while I I drew them and and one of the things that would often happen in that scenario and you can sort of tell what my social circle was my friends would say okay you can draw me I'll sit still for you for 10 minutes but can I read my book while you do it uh-huh. and that'll That'll come into play a little bit later. and But also at the same time, when adults in my life would ask me, oh, are you going to be an artist when you grow up? I would be like, no, that's impractical. <laughs> that's not a career. I am going to be something prestigious that matches the, my academic achievements. I was really sad that I didn't get, that I didn't have any aptitude. I really wanted to be a woman in STEM mm. for feminism, mm. but that wasn't really where any of my interests lay. Yeah. And then, again, all through high school, art was really important. I did a lot of it. And I was getting ready to apply for university. I was going to be a criminal crown attorney. That was that was my path. I had decided I was going to study political science. And I was getting ready to apply for school. And I was sitting in a room with my mom, again, staring at a computer. And I just broke down. I was like, I can't do this. I can't be a lawyer. I am way too emotional. I'm way too invested in everything that anybody who's in a room with me, I'm I'm 110% invested with them. So I just don't think that I have the emotional discipline or distancing required to Mm. put myself in that kind of position. And not that I really know what being a lawyer is. Well, and if, if you were working on the crown side, you'd be a prosecutor. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So that, so that would even be, I feel like, I mean, again, never been a lawyer. I have watched a lot of true (laughs) crime documentaries though. So I think I know a thing or two, but it it looks like that would be almost the most 
kind of intense maybe yeah and emotionally taxing of of those sort of options because at least I don't know I feel like at least as a defense attorney I'd kind of be able to be like well even if they're guilty they deserve a fail, fair trial and I can be like kind of on the side of justice this way right yeah right. yeah I don't and, think I had any of that nuance at 17 I mm. just I thought that there were certain kinds of impressive careers and I wanted to do one of them. Right. Right. <laughs> Thankfully I've, flo- I've, I've grown a lot since then. But as, as I was having this breakdown with my mom, she was mm-hmm. like, well, you've always been good at art. You've always liked art. Why don't you go to this art high school in the next town over for a year and do some art and then you can figure out what you want to do after that. And I was like, okay, mom, you're so weird. <laughs> So weird and wonderfully supportive. So that's what I did. And then I didn't really look back ever at my political science degree of hypothetical. Yeah. So was it once you were in that artistic environment, did it start to feel right? It did. It was the first place that I was ever taught that art should be about something, which Mm. seems like something that we always take for granted. But as a young person who didn't have any artists in my life, I thought that art was supposed to be beautiful. I didn't know that it was supposed to be about something. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. that was really important. And do you think Uh, that kind of contributed to this feeling for you that art wasn't an impressive career? You know, you're saying like, I needed to do something impressive and art mm -hmm. for the young Brianna did not fall under that umbrella. It sounds like. Yeah, and I am a little bit embarrassed on her behalf. I'll like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I had this. I've had this preoccupation with doing something important or doing something impressive, and I don't really know where that comes from, unless it comes from standardized schooling mm. or what. But but yeah, I'm glad that it's something that I've processed and let go of that. There are other things that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I remember having kind of similar ambitions at at seventeen. And mm-hmm. for me, I think it had something to do with that sense of your whole life being in front of you, and that you've got an agency over it, and so you need to figure out what you're going to do. And if I'm totally honest, I think there's something in there too about the kind of facing of your own mortality that you're doing at that age, or at least I was, and kind of being Mm. like, oh my gosh, I have one life and it's going to end sometime. I need to do something huge, (laughs) you know, almost a reaction to that, that understanding of a path that life is and the fact that it's going to have a beginning, a middle and end and a legacy and that almost as a reaction against that, I was like, I have to be the first female baseball player in the major leagues, you know, or something just like insane, you know, really, truly unachievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe as a very direct response to this, although it hasn't felt, it's felt more roundabout. My current body of work is made for teenagers and made to 
remind them that there are other things that are not their future career that Mm. they can be thinking about and that they don't have to make any hard decisions. That's what my work is about right now. Interesting. So how does that manifest in the work, that message? Uh, So my, my current project is this series of rooms that are all individual prints but they will all eventually fit together into uh-huh. one sort of greater composition where yeah. all perspective matches. And it would be you're looking into the open side of a dollhouse, kind of. Uh-huh. It's like Durr's Triumphal Arch. It's a great, a great tradition in printmaking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the theme is the theme is comfort. And so I've been interviewing people, specific real humans, about how they seek comfort why they need to seek comfort, what's causing them stress or anxiety, and do they think they deserve comfort? Those are my three interview questions. And then I make a room, I design an image with them in it that is a space that embodies their deepest comfort, their most joyful inspiration. And so the idea is... the I read somewhere that we develop our coping mechanisms when we're teenagers and that Mm. we keep them for our whole lives. And I don't know if that's true, but based on that premise, I was thinking about how the coping mechanism that I I started when I was a teenager is I read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. And now whenever I'm stressed or tired or mad at the world, I descend into a book. I go for the escapism. And on this spectrum of coping mechanisms coping on the spectrum of coping mechanisms that's probably one of the healthier options i would say so <laughs> yeah that's not a bad one so i guess i want to using these real people's actual coping strategies demonstrate to teenagers who might not have those examples in their lives that there are so many different ways to seek comfort and there are so many ways to seek true deep comfort, not surface level. I feel better for 10 seconds comfort scrolling on Instagram, but something that will actually make you feel better about mm-hmm. your whole life. Yeah. Um, like the, that really important distinction between distraction and avoidance and comfort. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people yeah get those confused because there's this sense of, well, I'm not feeling my bad thing in this moment. So I'm comforting myself, but right. it's, it, it reminds me a little bit of, yeah, of, of just this, I can't remember exactly where, what the distinction was being made, but it was something along the lines of like having to do with brain chemicals and whether or not you're kind of accessing them in the right way. And it had to do with this idea of, do you feel better or worse after you've done the thing, right? So I lost my temper at the internet this morning because I need to take this this international trip next year. And the tickets had been one price and I couldn't buy them because I was didn't have good enough reception and then I went to buy them and they'd gone up $300 and I was like god damn fucking internet pop you know I'm just like and it's like and so like in that moment it's like I could scroll on Instagram or I don't know eat 
something that makes me feel bad or whatever it is, but it's, it's that, that choice that's like, well, or you could go walk the dogs. And so it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, would I feel better actually on just staring at Instagram for 10 minutes? I wouldn't be feeling that anger, but I probably wouldn't feel better on the other side. Whereas if I just got up and walked the dogs, it would actually provide comfort. And that's just such yeah. an important distinction. And I really think that I've never heard anyone talk about actually trying to tell this to adolescents. And it's so important. And I don't think <laughs> they know the difference. <laughs> I don't I don't think they do. And one of the other things that's become apparent in my research and in these conversations that I've been having with people is because I've asked lots of people, I've had formal interviews for each print in the series that I've done. And I've done, I've done three finished prints. I have one in progress and I have one more interview that I've done. That's going to be a print. So I'm up to five Mm. formal interviews, but I've asked this question to a lot more people in my life just to try and get a baseline. What do people want to talk about? Well, they're interesting Um, questions too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. They seem really basic, but also interesting. They spark fun conversations and vulnerable conversations. But the thing that I'm learning, the overarching pattern is that in general, the more privileged a person is, the more likely they are to think about comfort as a perk, a Hmm. bonus, something that is good, but a luxury. The more intersecting aspects of oppression or difficulty that a person has in their life, the more likely they are to consider comfort something absolutely necessity for their well-being, mm-hmm. for their identity, for mm-hmm. their still being aliveness. And that was one of the things I didn't see coming in this project that feels like one of the most important things that I've learned. Even after I let go of this idea of doing an important career or whatever, Mm. and I embraced art school and I embraced wholeheartedly the fact that I was going to be an artist, a practicing artist who was going to support herself with her art. Uh (laughs) And I, I, I I thought that I had to make art about important things, you know? And I didn't think that comfort was an important thing. So if I look back on the work that I was making 10 years ago, when I was 19, it was about comfort. It was so explicitly (laughs) about comfort, but I would never admit it. I would say that it was in a, it was a, oh God, I don't know what I would have said, but I would have tried to make it about something else. And it was about comfort and, you know, even, even as I was coming out of university, I went to Oakhead University in Toronto. And even as I was coming out of that, I thought that I, I was very talented printmaker, drawer, person, illustrator, right? I could do beautiful things. I had a really good eye for construction and structure. But I didn't think that I had important enough ideas to make work that was about my ideas, which is part of the reason I started doing so many collaborative projects. And I don't regret them at all. Mm -hmm. They were hugely formative and amazing to work on. But I think the reason that I wanted to work with authors was because I didn't think I had anything important to add to the conversation beyond my technical skills. 
Mm. And Mm -hmm. now I really truly believe that comfort is one of the most important things that you can talk about. And I don't know, (laughs) maybe I need to let go of this idea of importance, but it matters. Comfort matters. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to get there. Yeah. Wow. There's so much in there. And I'm thinking a little bit about the trope of the tortured artist and maybe Mm -hmm. this idea that if you're not making work that comes from that place, it's not, again, inverted commas, important, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that if you are taking care of yourself and your mental and emotional well-being, that you're kind of betraying the tortured genius that you need to be to make important art. I don't know. And and you know what? Do you know when I absolutely make garbage art is when I'm mad or sad. <laughs> I am not a person who can channel my emotions that I have mm-hmm. to make. I make good art from a place of like, peace. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. And, and I've thought about this a, a lot as someone who's interested in art and interested in the human experience. And I think this idea that that somehow pain creates good creativity. I don't think that's necessarily not true, but I do believe it's not sustainable. And have and, you seen the yeah. the Hannah Gatsby her second skit? I can't remember what it's called. Douglas. Have you seen Douglas? No, I haven't. I really want to. I she I, has a, yeah. a, a Sorry. Oh, no, Sorry. Uh, go ahead. I just got all excited about Hannah Gatsby because I, I, I love Nanette and I, I read her book recently and it was just oh, heartbreaking and beautiful. Book. And yeah, so I, but I haven't got a chance to see yeah her new one yet. Well, because she does a, a wonderful bit in the middle. The whole thing is about our history, frankly. Right. She has this wonderful bit in the middle where she talks about Van Gogh and why we think about Van Gogh when we think about the tortured artist and how the only productive times in his life is when he was taking medication and talking Uh to his brother. And that's where the art comes from. The art doesn't come from the tortured places. The art comes from the spaces between that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think part of the problem is that it doesn't make as good enough a story is is we we love tragic figures in narrative and so the guy who just works really hard at painting and takes his meds on time and focuses on human connections makes some of the most beautiful beloved paintings this world has ever seen it doesn't have the same drama as the no. the guy who cuts off his ear and is a genius that that kind of narrative and and there's something in here too for me i think about about gender dynamics and what we're told is important and <laughs> <Yep>. softness <laughs> and comfort and these things that are tropes of traditional femininity just automatically being pushed to the side and it's like what's important suffering and fighting and making and wrestling and I mean all of that gets that gets forefronted there's everything (laughs) there's a really beautiful line in one of the new Florence and the Machine songs I'm gonna butcher it but she's I think it's King I think it's King and she's talking about she's talking to her partner her male partner or whatever and she says you need to go to war Mm. to find something to write about or to 
that men, the idea was that men need the angst in order to make <laughs> art. And yeah. women, it's either we don't need angst or we're already living in enough angst that we're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't uh, know. I don't know if I want to put in hard gender norms on that. But but yeah, I, I do think that it is an interesting kind of thing. And when you think about the tortured genius artist, you always picture a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's definitely a point of the fact that there's so few women in art history in general. Mm. And so right now we're contemporary artists, we're making contemporary work, but that whole narrative that you're given, particularly if you've been given a traditional university education, it's so male dominated, so white dominated, so European dominated. And so this idea of you say, I think Van Gogh is the perfect archetype of that. It's such a mm -hmm. dominant force in the way we picture what being an artist is. But if you were to look at how other people make who aren't the, the white cis guy tortured genius, that's a whole nother narrative that again, as you speak to, we're, we're not exposed to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So one of my influences can't find the name of the woman who is behind it, but the Instagram handle handle is the nap ministry. Oh, and uh -huh. their, and their thing is rest is resistance. Uh huh. And I've seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> everything that they do is brilliant. I think the founders, the founders of black woman, and it's just, it's this thing that the opposite of capitalism is resting. The, the solution to this is to take time for yourself to heal yourself. Mm, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's, that's a, a big thing. Absolutely. I'm just thinking about it now and that, that, inherent sense of lack that capitalism instills that you feel like you're constantly need to be moving and working to try and just survive to try and just get that basic level of safety mm -hmm. and of course but when you're doing that, that oh go ahead yeah sorry it's just it's even beyond that where you do need to work to survive to put food on your table to pay your rent but it's so it's so ingrained in us that we don't know how to take breaks without feeling guilty anymore. Uh -huh. I think I, I it was 2018. I spent the entirety of 2018, the only time I've ever followed through on a New Year's resolution, <sighs> and I decided that I was going to forgive myself for not being productive. Mm. And a whole lot of my identity was tied up in being prolific and working hard and working long studio hours. And so I decided that if I needed to take an afternoon to just read a book for four hours or six hours, <laughs> let's be real, mm -hmm. I would not judge myself for that. I would not be disappointed in myself. I would not feel guilty about it. And by the end of the year, my whole attitude had changed, but it, it took a year of wow. practicing that consciously. Gosh, that's that's really impressive. And I say this as someone who <laughs> I have such a hard time with it. I just I have such a hard time with it. I will literally turn to my husband, Tim, and be like, is it OK if I just sit on the sofa? 
And it doesn't have to oh. do with him being my husband. It just happens. Yeah. To, it would ask any other human in the room. I just need to. I just need another person to tell me it's okay that I just stop moving. Permission has to be external. Yes, yes, exactly. That like I'm just feeling tired and just feeling like I need this isn't enough. Need validation from someone else. And yeah, I totally get that. I don't know if logic is helpful to you in this situation, but I will say that one of the things that's helped me and hopefully has helped other people <laughs> is I have this thing where I say, you can't rest accidentally. <laughs> if you have a day where you just can't do the work that you're supposed to be doing in that moment, and you still sit at your computer or at your drawing table or wherever it is that you're sitting and you slog through it and you don't accomplish anything or you have to like throw out what you did and you're like, I didn't accomplish anything today and I still worked and it was awful. Mm -hmm. Like you don't get to count that as, you don't get to count that not accomplishing as rest. Like that, that doesn't count. <laughs> you have to rest on purpose. So my, my thing is that if you're having an unproductive day and you can feel that rest yeah. on purpose, and then come back to it <laughs> so you don't have that you don't have that nothing space where it's not rest and it's not yeah. accomplishing anything that's the worst that's the worst kind of purgatory of yes. self-induced hell because <laughs> you're the only one who can change it <laughs> yes i was thinking to to that end can you remind me again what the three questions were about comfort that you were asking i remember the the one about deserving it but what were the first two the first, uh, so it starts off, how do you seek comfort? Mm -hmm. What do you do? And then sometimes I expand to say, what do you do when you've had a bad day to make yourself feel better? Mm -hmm. And then my second question is, what's my second question? <laughs> my, second quest <laughs> my second question is, what is causing you discomfort? Why mm. do you need to seek comfort? What are the things that are stressing you out? And... My third question is, do you think you deserve comfort? So uh, for the, I'm just like, I'm, I'm just like, I kind of want you to answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> Would you sure. be willing to? Because it, it's in the context of this conversation. I'd be really curious to hear what you think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Usually when I have this conversation with people and they give me all of their answers and we talk about it for a bit, they're like, okay, now you. Okay, good. I yeah. So yeah. How, how so, do you seek comfort? I seek comfort um, through reading and escapism. And my reading is, again, not what you would call important books. I don't read classics. I don't read anything that's won an award. <laughs> <laughs> I read a lot of romance and sci-fi and fantasy. Mm. And my other thing is I'm highly social. And so I, I love a, a good phone call. I'm, I'm a person <laughs> who could just talk forever. And the, the nature of COVID being that if, even if we socialized the same amount we socialize differently. We've had a lot more opportunity for one-on-one -on -one conversation than we have for group hangouts in the last three years. So that's kind of perfect for me. Not that I want to be grateful about COVID. I'm really not, but, but I love a long phone call with my mom, with any number of my friends who don't live in the same city as me, which is a good half of them. And I could just 
the thing where I forgive myself for not being productive. Sometimes my Tuesday looks like an hour and a half long conversation with a friend in Toronto. And then a half hour chat with my mom where I called to ask her one question and then we just uh-huh. caught up. And then another hour and a half long, I'll, I'll pop into the studio and instead of accomplishing anything, I'll just like chat with somebody for another hour and a half. Mm. And that doesn't feel like wasted time to me. That feels integral. That feels necessary. So that's how I seek comfort. I need mm-hmm. people and or fictional people. <laughs> and I'm a big, I'm a big romantic. So I, 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 <laughs> I have this, I have a lot of theories. You will learn this. Uh, yeah. The theory between capital R romance and lowercase r romance. Lowercase r romance is, it's pretty heteronormative and it's like chocolates and flowers on Valentine's day. And capital R romance is it's, you're a woman standing alone in the middle of the moors and you're, the wind is blowing you and you're having a moment with the universe. That's capital R romance. So I'm more into capital R romance. <laughs> yeah, that is such a good way of explaining that. Sorry, not to interrupt, but I've tried to use the word romantic before with people to not describe, as you say, heteronormative Hallmark cards. And they're right. just like, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? I'm like, no, it's like, it's just such a, a romantic idea. You know, like I'll, I'll talk about mm-hmm. space. I love space. I love everything to do with space. And I'm like, this photo is from NASA, the star nursery. And it's so beautiful. It's so romantic. And they're like, what? You know? <laughs> so I love that I distinction. Feel like, I feel like you can explain it to people, but they either get it or they don't get mm-hmm. it. Yeah, for sure. Anyways. So those are the some of the ways that I seek comfort. The things that stress me out are the world, <laughs> war, the yeah. environment, yeah. poverty, racism, bigotry, just just being just being sad that like the way that I hope for people to behave in terms of empathy and always considering their fellow, their fellow human mm-hmm. isn't, isn't always at the forefront of our decision-making as a collective species. And mm-hmm. that makes me sad. And so I'm always, I, <laughs> I kind of measure my level of hope, about the world. Maybe this is too personal. We'll see if I want to leave it in after. But I measure my feelings of hope about the world when I think about whether or not I want to have a child in the future. Mm-hmm. So if I've been on Instagram too much and I'm like following too many people that I think are important but are giving me devastating news on a daily basis, I'm no, I can't. I can't bring a child into the world. That would be bad. Mm-hmm. And then if I spend some time with my parents or if I am having good conversations with people or reading good books or being outside or petting a dog, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I could have a kid. I could have a kid in the future. You nothing like looking into a, a dog's eyes <laughs> to just you feel like <laughs> make you feel better about the world. Yes, yes, exactly. To make you feel very good about the world. Yeah. I I definitely connect with that for sure. Yeah. And then do I think I deserve comfort? Absolutely. I think everybody deserves comfort. Mm -hmm. 
do you, and, and maybe this is connected to what we, we talked a little bit about the top of the hour, but you know, with that question for other people, the deserving of comfort, mm-hmm. do most people say yes? Do most people say no? I mean, is it, is it related as we kind of spoke to, to sort of societal comfort, your baseline com- comfort at all? Again, it, it, it depends on, it depends on the person. I usually have people who say, yes, I believe in my depths of my soul that I deserve comfort. And if I didn't believe that, I don't think I would be alive today. Mm. And then I have people who say, who, again, who think about comfort as a privilege and who say like, well, if I'm on the subway, I don't deserve the comfort of sitting if there's a grandmother or something Mm -hmm. who needs my seat. And I'm like, that's not the same kind of comfort. (laughs) (laughs) That's not really the comfort I'm talking about. So, and I, I actually interviewed my teenage cousins during a long car ride a couple months ago, which was freaking cool because I haven't actually talked to any teenagers about it. Yeah. So they were, they were all 15 or 16, three of them. And, and yeah, they, they, they looked at comfort as, I kind of looked at comfort as kind of similar to free will, where it was hmm. like that, that again, it was, it was always their comfort versus somebody else's comfort. Hmm. And certain people's comfort in certain situations were more important than others, which is true. And also, I, I think that I think that knowing in your soul that you deserve comfort is really good foundation to build to build yourself on, but also to build your relationships on. If you don't think you deserve comfort, if you don't if you don't think you deserve that, then I think it's hard for you to believe that everybody else deserves comfort too. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's really significant because I have noticed the ways in which I don't extend grace to myself. I tend not to extend it to other people. And mm-hmm. I like to think that I'm above that or that I can kind of transcend that in some way where I'm like, no, 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 like I can be hard on myself in this way and I can be really understanding for everyone else. And I, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I can't. I, don't I, think it, I don't think it does. Yeah. 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 I, I want to make sure in the time we've got left here that we get to talk a little bit about your journey to being a full-time artist, someone who's supporting herself on her art, because there's a lot of students who listen to this podcast and a lot of people who are maybe in that very beginning, little wobbly Bambi legs phases of their art career, who I'm sure would love to be in that position. So you said that once you knew you were going to be an artist, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. No holds bar. I'm going to mm-hmm. go make a living on the things that I create. How did you get from that moment to now where you've got, you, you sell work online, you've got an Instagram, you've got Patreons, patrons through Patreon, but what yeah. was that arc like? Okay. So coming out of school, I started a publishing 
micro publishing company with a good friend of mine who was she had an English degree and so she wanted to be an editor and so we worked with several authors and so I think I've worked I think I've quote unquote I don't always use this language but published the work of maybe 16 people ish mm-hmm. now and I thought I was going to be a publisher. I was delighted to tell my grandparents that I was going to be a publisher because I thought they would respect that more than being an artist. <laughs> Again, other things that I still needed to let go of. <laughs> and and so that was that was successful in terms of it got my name out. Mm-hmm. And when we launched a book project, our first book project, it was an edition of 100 and we sold out in two days, which oh, is amazing and crazy. But we sold these <laughs> we sold these books for thirty dollars each, and they had sixteen two layer lino cut illustrations in them, and marbled covers, and letterpress printed covers, and lino cut details on the covers, and they were all hand bound. The edition of a hundred, and I'm like looking back on that, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, I just spoke into my hands. I said, oh my God. And uh, yeah, I think I made about 10 cents an hour on that project, hypothetically. But yeah. in actuality, yeah. I didn't make any money because I just fed it into the next project. So my art didn't start paying me until probably a couple years into that. Mm-hmm. At first, I was just feeding everything I had into future projects, funding materials for the next project, the next project, the next project, and using it again to develop a good rapport and a reputation and to collaborate with cool people. And my work was collected by a couple of, now it's been collected by four library collections, which is very cool. And had a couple of shows in Toronto around it and had book launches and learned to talk to people about them and how to organize events. And that was, that was really huge. How to promote an event, how to run a pre-order sale. Uh Um, That was all very, very important. And then I moved to Edmonton with my then partner in 2019 and and during 2019 into 2020, that school year, I think, still think of things in school years. I haven't been a student in forever. <laughs> I, that, was, that year was a big transition for me. I started doing more two-dimensional works that were completely self-directed and independent. And my business partner sort of started having other priorities. And we were working on a project that ended up being canceled due to COVID complications and other things. Mm. And, and I started... And so, and then my business partner and I decided to part ways and, and I started doing still some of the book works, but a lot more independent printmaking. And about six months after that, I quit my day job. I, I, I was doing, I'd had my website set up for a number of years. I'd, I started doing market as well. There's a wonderful local market here in Edmonton called the Royal Bison, which is really a very cool, a very cool market. It runs once in May, right before Mother's Day, once in or a couple weekends in in late November, early December, and then sometimes they do a fall one, but they're not doing it this year. And they were like switched to online during the pandemic, and it was great, and they they're just amazing. And then the other market that I started doing in the first in the first year that I was fully self-employed by my art 
um, was, it's called the 124 Grand Market in Edmonton. And it's an outdoor market that is a block or two blocks of the city where they close down the street and everyone puts up their tents. And it's a farmer's market. So there's a lot of people selling, literal farmers, people selling veggies. (laughs) There's a lot of local brewers. There's a number of people who have jewelry for sale, bakers, food trucks. There's a gelato guy. It's pretty great. And there's not a lot of art there. And so in some ways, it's not the perfect target audience. First of all, I hate, I hate the rhetoric around target audiences. <laughs> that, might, that might be a personal preference. I don't know. If it's working for you, keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's something that I've been doing twice a week all summer. And I was telling you in my email where I was, please let me come talk to you on your podcast, that I get to and from the market pulling a a cart because I don't have a car. (laughs) I've decided to be a a pedestrian cyclist in the city and that makes it somewhat difficult. But I chose my current apartment based on its proximity to this market and all the decisions are are all layered and built in. And I have this cart and it looks like, it kind of looks like a giant shallow milk crate. It's bright green. There's pictures of it on my Instagram. And it has these big inflatable tires and it can hold, it could probably hold a thousand pounds or something. It's mm-hmm. a lot. And so I loaded up with my tent, my table, my market essentials. I'm required to have a fire extinguisher and, oh, I have concrete weights to hold down the corners of my tent and all of my art and display furniture and stuff. And I've actually started bringing a chair because I decided I deserve to sit if I a want to. comfort, if you will. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Except I don't have a folding chair or anything. So it's just a dining table chair. It's fine. It works. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I load it all up into my cart and I walk five blocks on Thursday and a block and a half on Sunday. And then I set everything up. And then I sell my wares for four hours and then I take everything down and then I go home. And that's, that's my summer market routine. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I I know a few people who are doing markets as a way to make their print practice sustainable. And it really seems Mm -hmm. like it's kind of a game changer if you can figure out kind of what's the right price point for the audience and, know what to bring. And then it really is a way to just sell directly in person to people where you're, but not without the crazy commitment and risk of say opening a storefront. It's you kind of get a lot of the benefit. And so I would love it. And also more, more and more people did that because I think it's also a great way to help educate the public about what prints are because they're, they've gone there to buy some carrots and all of a sudden they're looking at this beautiful image and they say, well, how did, how did this happen? Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of people come up to me and they're like, Oh, these are screen prints. And I'm like, they are (laughs) not, but you're close. And I appreciate your enthusiasm. Yeah. And yeah. So teaching people about what Lino is, is about 40% of all of the conversations Mm -hmm. that I have. I can see. Yep. Yep. And, and I also, I also meet people at the market and have, because I'm doing this work about comfort, I always ask people, 
I often ask people what kind of genre they like to read. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if they're if they pick up one of my prints that is has somebody reading on it, which is 75% of all of my mm-hmm. prints, then I ask them what kind of genres they like to read. And and I talk to people about comfort. It's a shocker. <laughs> so in this house that I've designed, there is a basement section and all of the basement prints are printed on a dark green washi and everything else is printed on white. And I'm putting all of my family members in the basement because they're my foundation. (laughs) And then the other rooms that I've decided and the people that I've interviewed, the other three people are all people that I have either met or forged a closer connection with by speaking to them at the market. So the market is how I meet people who aren't artists. Really my only avenue. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, and it must be nice because it's something that can happen so organically and considering the sort of subject matter that you're, you're working with and you're, you know, wanting to be able to have access to kind of the general public if you were to put a call out or trying to sort of organize it in another fashion, it wouldn't, it wouldn't just be this sense of just people coming and spending time with you and it kind of unfolding in a really natural way, which is, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel really lucky to sort of have that, I guess you would call it a secondary benefit. One of the things that I'm always thinking about in terms of the market is is it still worth it? Mm-hmm. Just from a logical point of view, are the hours and time that I'm an effort, physical sweat <laughs> that I'm putting into this paying off in uh-huh. terms of sales and other things? And, and if you look at it like strictly in money, you're like, okay, technically yes, but just barely. Yeah. <laughs> but then if you look at it in terms of other softer, more amorphous benefits in terms of meeting people, in terms of learning to talk about my work more eloquently, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of getting feedback, it becomes more and more valuable when you look at those factors. Yeah. And there definitely is, I think, a connection between people that comes from the love of reading, you know, when you're saying you can start this conversation with someone when you see they're drawn to an image of someone reading. And it's something that I've, I've definitely observed in my 37 years on this planet is that people who understand what that is to get lost in that world, there's a kindred mm-hmm. spirit there for sure. I, I spent a, uh, the fact some, that you use the word kindred mm, spirit tells me that you're a reader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent a, a summer working at Barnes and Noble once in between undergrad and graduate school. And, and you could just, there was something where you could f- see the difference between the people who came in because they're getting the, I don't know, just getting a book, the idiot's guide to Python or something, you know, and, and that's fine. And, but then there would be people who they just had it. They had, they had the it of, of being the reader and, and knowing that. And it, it makes me wonder, are you familiar with anything, Susan Cain and what she's, her writing? It's nonfiction. It's important work. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now I'm going to have to look it up though. She's, she wrote her first book was, I don't know, quite a few years ago now, quite a few, five, but COVID makes everything strange. But and it was called Quiet and it was about introversion. And oh. she's got a new one out that's called Bittersweet. 
And it's about kind of the power of sort of melancholia and that feeling of of the beauty and the pain of life together. And the, the work intersects a bit, as you can imagine, because she says that there are, in the book, she talks about how in, in bittersweet, people who tend to be sensitive tend to be people who are more likely to love Leonard Cohen, to feel really deeply when they look at a sunset, all of this really deep feeling. And she says that there are babies that are born that actually they can measure their higher heightened reaction to stimulus in terms of giving them sugar water, they'll salivate more or they'll react more to loud noises. And those babies are more likely to grow up to be introverted people who need that escape time. And, and it's not a, it's not a one-to-one correlation. But anyway, it's just, it's all her work is going around the edges of this conversation for me because there's, that that need to be quiet and still and how that relates to comfort is is huge for me because the opposite of quiet and still is the movement and the producti- productivity and yeah it's that sounds like it sounds like a book that could stick in my brain forever once i read it there's a couple of nonfiction books that i've mm. read and they stayed with me forever walkable city and bullshit jobs and darling you can't do both and <laughs> this is your brain on birth control those are all amazing nonfiction. will shift the way you think about the world yeah book. yeah so i'm gonna have to check out quiet and bittersweet i like her titling scheme too it's good yeah, yeah, I think I think you'll connect with her work and cuz she just it, it it and a lot of it is about pushing against the the status quo or the dominant narrative that's you need to be loud, you need to be productive, you need to always be going. And so I think yeah, I think it'll fit in nicely to what you do. In the time Thank that you. we have left, mm-hmm. what are you looking forward to? Do you have anything on the horizon that's particularly making giving you a little spring in your step? you want to promote i'm looking forward to fall yay it's the best season fight me i feel like Uh, it's the ultimate season of comfort for me i i get it it's coziness yeah it's coziness i hear it on september it's early september in edmonton and we do have leaves falling not a ton but a little bit because of our slightly northern climate. Mm -hmm. And so fall will hit in full force in a week and a half and last for two weeks past that, and then it'll be done. So we really have to soak it in while it's happening. And so I'm really looking forward to that and also letting it it inform my practice. Mm -hmm. I'm a person who will assign the label of research to all kinds of things, including going for a walk and smelling fall. Um, yeah. And so I guess I'm, I'm excited to ground myself again in that and allow it to carry me through the winter as I, I always have the most time to work on things creatively January through April. There's really very few markets happening. There's just, it's just a quiet time. And so hypothetically, I would like to make a lot of work, but I need to make a lot of work, but I need something to sustain me through that time. And so that'll be partly 
memories of fall vibes and it will be partly pre-Christmas market sales. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, where can, oh, go ahead, please. If I can add it, I'm installing my artwork in a library for the first time in November, which I'm really excited about. It's going to be a work in progress of this house project. And there's also going to be a feedback box so that like, I'll let anybody who wants to answer my three comfort questions, just like on paper. And because I ultimately want to install this work in the teen section of public libraries, this feels like a really important early step. And so I'm really excited about that. Wonderful. And then where can people find you and follow you? Sure thing. I am at penrosepress.ca. That is both my website and my Instagram handle. The .ca is Canada, in case you're unfamiliar. (laughs) (laughs) Our more cozy neighbors to the north, I think. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't thought of Canada as embodying coziness, but I will take it. (laughs) I think so. I just, I think about it in terms of... It's all um, our flannel. It's like, it's flannel. It's a little bit, it's colder. You're not getting involved in international conflicts as often. (laughs) It's like... It's a cozy, yeah, yeah, a cozier vibe. <laughs> well, it's been really delightful, Brianna, to speak with you. I, oh I really God, mean that. I, I feel like I, I'm going to need to take some time to internalize why I think I don't deserve comfort and I'm constantly self-flagellating about productivity. I'll bring that one to the next therapy session with Dr. Nina for me. <laughs> Well, if you find the time or the inclination, I would love to hear what your answers to the questions are. Oh, yeah. I will. I'll give those some thought for sure. Yeah. That would be awesome. And yeah, so thanks for, thank you for reaching out and I'm glad we got to talk and and please stay in touch. Thank you so much. This this was so lovely. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, it was great. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Bye, Brianna. Bye. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts where our editor Timothy Pauschak digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very best way and the very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when I guess will be Cam York and Edie Overturf from the Newsprint Podcast. We talk about how and why someone would want to start a printmaking podcast anyway, what it's like doing a roundup of the best print news around the world, how they fit their personal practices into all of this, and we do some scheming for future projects. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.